Well, it's that time of year if you've uh, unfortunately had the news on at all, where our local news is filled every morning, every minute, with hurricane readiness, massive countdowns, counting down to all these days. So you need to get ready. You're going to have, a, have our uh, sales tax holiday because you need to get ready. Uh, you need to get your preparations now. It's going to be the worst hurricane season ever, so you need to get ready. Constantly for the last couple of weeks, all that you hear about is you need to be ready. It is summertime. It is almost June 1st. You need to be ready. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready. Do everything you can uh, to be able to get ready. One of the things that you have is, is trying to get people to realize the necessity of making preparations before it's too late. And one of the things that you have the scriptures always trying to tell us is the same thing. Always trying to give us these pictures that now you know there are things that you need to do to get ready. There are things that are necessary in your life in making preparations for the coming of the Lord. And when you're in this final section in the book of Acts where you are paying attention to uh, the details of the Apostle Paul's life, and in particular, the way that he's preaching and the things that he's doing uh, very much fit a picture of his life about a readiness that he possesses. Now, he is ready for the things that are going to come. He is ready to do the work that God has called him to do. He is ready to proclaim the gospel. You have even Paul in some of his letters even telling people, I want you to imitate me as I'm imitating Christ. You see, what I'm doing in my life and how I am ready with God, ready with the gospel, ready to do the work, and I want you to be ready as well. And, and in that picture, you even have when, when the Apostle Paul wrote about uh, us putting on the armor of God, one of them that you, if you're like me, don't really catch because it's a really lengthy one, is he says that in your readiness that you need to wear the gospel as shoes for your feet, but he calls it the readiness of the gospel. That there is going to be a readiness of the people of God as they're putting on God's armor, fully prepared for whatever can come. And in Acts chapter 20, as well as in Acts chapter 21, as you're reading about these events in the life of Paul, I think you see five pictures of readiness in Paul's life. Five illustrations of how he is ready and what he is expecting others to be ready to do. And so that's what we're going to look at this evening as we ask the question, if we are ready by looking at how Paul was ready for the various things and the various circumstances that he dealt with as he was going about teaching the gospel. In the beginning of chapter 20, you have a number of verses here at the very start that are easy to kind of pass by, sometimes in a hurry to get to other favorite verses in this chapter. But I want you to notice the first two verses of chapter 20 in the book of Acts. It says here now, after the uproar ceased. Now remember what happened in chapter 19. It's been a while since we've done Acts. I didn't put it on pause, bring it back here at the end. But remember, Paul has been in Ephesus and an outright riot has occurred. Uh, and they barely get out of there with their lives only because there is someone with enough wisdom to stand up and say, 
Uh, with this kind of rioting, this is an unlawful assembly, and we know what Romans think about that. And if the Romans find out about what they're doing, we're all going to be in a lot of trouble. And so this riot finally dispersed. So that's what that's referencing. After this uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. I hope you saw the, the repetition right there in just the first two verses. It is a repetition that you see in the life of Paul uh, quite a bit, which is he wants to go around encouraging the people of God. Twice in these two verses, it says that after this uproar, he goes about encouraging the disciples that are there. Then he departs for Macedonia. And as he's going through the regions, his goal is again to be an encourager, to meet with the people, to teach them the gospel, but to also be an encourager. And I noted on the screen before you that you have a number of places in the book of Acts where you are seeing pictures of Paul is being said of him that he is encouraging the people of God or Judas and Silas, they're encouraging the people of God. Or my favorite is chapter four, verse 36, where there's this man who you don't even know his real name. Nobody remembers him by his real name. His real name is Joseph, but we all know him as Barnabas because he's the son of encouragement and he goes about encouraging people. The book of Acts is filled with a picture of people who are desiring to encourage one another. And it is one of the most important things that we can do as the people of God. You might remember that the writer of Hebrews speaks about how we need to consider how to stir up within one another love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some but encouraging one another. This imagery of the need to encourage one another, I think is extremely important. Now, here's where I think sometimes our difficulty comes in. If sometimes what we do with being around other Christians or when it comes to worship or our gatherings is we will go and at the end of the time that we're together, you will evaluate within yourself and say, well, I don't know that I felt very encouraged today. Or, um, you know, on a level scale of one to ten, that was a seven on encouragement, or that was a two, that was a zero, that was a ten. You know, we, we kind of go through all that in terms of what we receive as encouragement. And I'll certainly not knock down the idea that in our getting together, we should be encouraged. But I want to flip the shoe around the other way and simply ask the question, do we come together with our goal being what the writer of Hebrews shows and the goal that you see the Apostle Paul going around doing that I want to encourage other people? Sometimes we think about it in terms of, well, I just don't know that I want to bother with all of that effort and time getting together because I just don't think I'm going to be encouraged. But have you ever thought about why you need to come so that you can encourage other people? That you can be the encourager. That you can be the one who can instill that kind of comfort and consolation and hope and help in other people. 
That is, I think, is such an important picture because so often what we do is we portray it as simply something that is going on around us and is being experienced. I think one of probably the worst things that has been described in terms of our assemblies is that there are five acts of worship. There's probably a hundred. And encouraging is one of them. One of the things that we are asked to do when we come together, according to the writer of Hebrews, is that we stir up in each other love and good works. That when we come together and we find those opportunities, whether it be in Bible studies in the building or worship in the building or Bible studies in homes, when we are gathering together, when we're talking on the phone, whatever our communication is to one another, to know that everybody needs encouragement. And sometimes we only think about it in terms of what we're receiving and not think about just as much as you need that. Everybody else in the room needs that too. Everybody else needs that encouragement also. And I find it beautiful that here you see the Apostle Paul who understands that truth. That in verse one, it says, as soon as this uproar ceases and here he is in Ephesus and everything just goes crazy in Ephesus. It says he gathers all these Christians together that are in Ephesus and he encourages them. I think I would have liked some encouragement myself after what I just experienced after a riot broke out over me. And I would say, you know what, can you guys help me? He's already thinking about encouraging others. And then in verse two, the same thing, going about all the regions and had given them much encouragement. To me, it cannot be overemphasized the need for us to think about when we are together, how can we encourage one another? What can we say? What can we do? And Paul is ready to do that, that everywhere he goes, that's what he's doing. In all of these churches that he visits, he is strengthening the disciples and is encouraging them to continue in the faith. And I think this is such an important role that we can play as the people of God. And the first picture of a readiness that is coming out of this chapter is that we would be ready to encourage others, that we would be ready to give that kind of help and hope to other people. The second picture continues on after naming all of these people who are accompanying him in verse four, and they move on to Troas in in, in verses five and six. And you'll notice at the end of verse six, it says that they waited there seven days. And on uh, verse seven, it says on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. I find it interesting that the apostle Paul chooses to be there seven days because he wants to worship with the Christians there. There seems to be no other conclusion to draw about why he's there all of that time, except the explanation that is given there in verse 7, that he's waiting to come around to the first day of the week. And on the first day of the week, the Christians are gathering. They're participating in the Lord's memorial and the Lord's supper. And then Paul is going to deliver a message to them. And It should make sense to us that this would be a key day for us to remember the death of our Lord. Is that 
while we can worship any and every day all the time, we see in the scriptures the importance of the Lord's day being when they came together to remember the Lord's death and the Lord's resurrection and a time when they came together to hear the word of God. You have the Apostle Paul saying that we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes and, and the first day of the week would be obvious as the day of the Lord's resurrection. I don't know. I sometimes think this is probably a modern problem where now you have all these the Saturdays and everybody's got all these different days. We'll just have, you know, church any old day and you pick whichever day you want to go. And that that's all fine, well and good. And I have no problem with adding days, but you can't subtract Sunday. <laughs> You've got to be here on the first day of the week. That is the important picture of when they came together for worshiping and remembering the Lord's death. I find it interesting and I'm going to quote from. A person you may have heard of because he's a renowned Baptist preacher in the 1800s. His name is Charles Spurgeon. And so sometimes when I get discouraged and think, man, look how people treat the Lord's Supper these days. Here's a writer for about 150 years ago. And I want you to listen to what he's observing that is going on in just the general evangelical Christendom world. He says, so with the Lord's Supper... My witness is, and I think I speak the mind of many of God's people now present, that coming as some of us do weekly to the Lord's table, we do not find the breaking of bread to have lost its significance. It is always fresh to us. Notice he's already dealing with an argument about, you know, if you take it every week, then it just becomes routine and habit and ritual. And he says, I don't know any of the people of God who think that. I don't know anybody who is coming to the table and thinking, well, you know, this is the same old tradition. Not at all. He says, shame on the Christian church that she should put it off to once a month and mar the first day of the week by depriving it of its glory in the meeting together for fellowship and breaking of bread and showing forth the death of Christ till he comes. They who once know the sweetness of each Lord's day celebrating his supper will not be content, I am sure, to put it off to less frequent seasons. <laughs> I think, well, if he's struggling with that problem in 1850, I guess things haven't changed. <laughs> things just not change. And I think there is a beauty in seeing what Paul is experiencing here is that there is this readiness for worship, that there is a desire to come together as the people of God and that you could expect that they would do that on the first day of the week. But a strange thing happens at this moment. You'll notice in verse 9, we're told that while Paul is uh, preaching here, we have a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window, and he sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, and bent over him and taking him up in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. You have this amazing scene that is recorded for us. And I think to me, one of the most natural questions is why is this poor guy listed here? You know, here is this whole scene of Paul is preaching a very long time. And somebody falls asleep and he falls out the window and dies. And now, okay, now what's your application? Okay, well, your application is one, don't fall asleep in church. 
Uh, or your application is preachers should not preach till midnight. You kind of pick whichever one you want. Uh, why is this here? What's he trying to get at? Well, I think the, the picture is in the miracle itself. You'll notice at the end of verse 9, it says that he is taken up dead. But then the Apostle Paul goes down and says, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. All right, well, what just happened right there? Uh, some read this and go, well, maybe he really wasn't dead and nobody could figure that out. And then Paul goes down because he's got his doctor degree. No, he doesn't. But he goes down and he's able to figure out, oh, no, he's, he's really alive. You might remember that there's really a similarity here. When Jesus is told that Jairus' daughter is dead, Jesus' response is, no, she's sleeping. And everybody mocks him. Oh, no, you don't know anything. We know how to take a pulse. We know that she's dead. And then Jesus raises the daughter from the dead. And I think the same thing is happening here. This man is dead. But for Paul to say what he is saying is proclaiming what is about to happen in this miracle. Just as Jesus will say, oh, no, she's just asleep. She's going to be just fine. Just give me a minute. Now, Paul's doing the same thing, going down and, and, and grabbing this man and saying, no, he's going to be just fine. A miracle has taken place. Well, why do we need this miracle right here? I believe it sets the tone not only for the rest of this chapter, but for the rest of the book that we have to have a show here that God has power over life. And he certainly has power over death. This is a very important miracle that is being proclaimed here that we should not read incidentally like, well, Paul preached a long time and uh, there he goes out the window and we're sure glad Paul was here and now he's okay. Why is the miracle recorded? Well, the miracle has to be here to show something very important, that God has the power over life and is able to determine then even with a, a raising to life, a resurrection from, from the dead. Now, I want you to hold that in your mind with this readiness, because what Paul experiences next and what he says is built upon this important truth, that God has power over the dead, that God has power over life. The, the rest of chapter 20 begins to show what the Apostle Paul is going to experience. In chapter 20, we're told in verse 17 that he calls for the elders of the Ephesian church to come and meet him. And he begins to explain to them everything that is going to happen. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 22. He says in verse 22 of chapter 20, but now behold, I am going to Jerusalem compelled by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I want you to think about the weight of what that's saying right there. Paul wants to meet with the, these Ephesian elders and he says, here's what I'm finding out. Every time I go to a city, the Holy Spirit tells me this, afflictions and imprisonment are coming. And yet I do want you to underscore the fact that we're told in verse 22 that the Spirit is wanting him to go to Jerusalem. I am constrained or compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. That's why I'm going. But friends, I want you to know the outcome. When I get to Jerusalem, God is telling me that it's going to go really, really bad. 
I'm going to get there and there's going to be hardships and afflictions and I'm going to be imprisoned. Now, which of us are not going to raise our hands and say, so maybe Jerusalem's not the best idea? You know, that doesn't sound like a good plan. We've got other cities, other options, other directions. Paul, you're a very important person. Why don't you go somewhere else and not go through this? And I want you to notice what Paul says about this in verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Here is this picture. He says, so I know it's going to go badly. And Paul says, I'm okay with that. All right, Paul, how are you okay with that? How could you possibly continue to go to Jerusalem, even though you know there's going to be afflictions and hardships, it's going to be painful, and you're going to be thrown in prison? It is an absolute thing. Well, here's how he can do that. He says, because the goal of our lives is not about simply protecting it, but rather to be able to use it in God's work. That's what he says. In verse 24, he's saying, I don't count my life of any value. No, no, he's not being haphazard. You know, I just don't care about my life, so I'll walk in front of a moving chariot and it'll be just fine. I don't really care. That's not the point. The point is, the value of life is not built in my keeping it and so, hey, I'm alive and healthy and breathing. My life's value is simply bound in the fact that I am able to do God's work. And if God's work is for me to go to Jerusalem and be afflicted and be persecuted and be imprisoned, I'm okay with that because that's doing God's work. That is the picture that he's giving is that there is a readiness to die, a readiness to give our lives because we know that we need to be doing God's work. And I think this is important because it can be awfully challenging to be mentally ready for the idea to do God's work rather than protecting our life at all costs. If I'm Paul, I would be like, well, wouldn't it be more valuable for me not to be in prison and to keep my life alive so I can keep doing God's work? And Paul says, no, I need to go to Jerusalem. And I do not value or account my life of any high value or precious to myself, but only that I could finish the course, this work that has been given to me. I hope that we would think about our lives and its value in terms of our role in God's work. That we are willing to give our lives to the work that God has given us to do, no matter what that means regarding what will happen to our lives. We're going to have to be very careful as we go forward in thinking about the value of life and not miss the idea that God's work is what is supreme. God's work is what matters. God's work is what must be accomplished. And Paul then is ready for that. He is ready to give his life. He is ready to die for the work of Christ because the essence of his life 
is God's work. I don't know that we always think about life like that. I think we have the tendency to think of life like the pie pieces. And so, you know, God gets a big slice and then, you know, family gets a slice and work gets a slice and hobbies gets a slice. And we have all of these slices. And Paul says, no, that's not how you're supposed to think about life. Paul says, here's how you think about life. This whole circle is all God's work. That's it. (laughs) It's just his work. And so I do not hold my life as precious or valuable in itself. But how I can use my life for the kingdom and for the work. There is a readiness. Now, as we, we just mentioned in the prior paragraph, one of the things that Paul has been, is showing in that miracle is that God has power over life. And God has power over death. And Paul is so keenly aware of that that he's saying, I'm willing to put my life out there. I'm willing to lay it down and I'm willing to do the work to go to Jerusalem. He'll come back to that at the end of this section. But notice as he's talking to these Ephesian elders, he has another warning and another picture of readiness for them. Because he speaks here and he says in verse 28, he says, I want you to be pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things and draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Fourth picture, as he speaks to these Ephesian elders, he says, you need to be ready in regards to your faith. He says, I want you to pay careful attention to yourselves, to the flock. He says in verse 31, I want you to be alert. I want you to be ready. And the reason why is because there are going to be so many opportunities for people to distract you from the work, to say twisted things, distort the truth so that you will not follow through with what God wants you to do. And I don't know how else to underscore it, except notice that Paul says when he was there for in, in, in Ephesus in verse 31, it says for three years. Yeah, just imagine this. He says for three years, I told you, watch out, be ready, be alert. <laughs> Three years, he's like, three years, he says, day and night. You, you just get this picture, it's just like every day you were around Paul, he'd, he'd come up to you and say, you need to watch out for your faith. You need to be careful. You need to be alert. You need to watch out for lies and deceit. You need to be, protect your faith and be careful. I think there is, a, I think there can be a very easy tendency to fall asleep spiritually. To almost allow ourselves to go into neutral with our walk with God. 
to not guard our hearts, to not watch out for false teaching, to not be careful about walking in the light and staying away from, from darkness. There can be such an ease of losing our intensity of being careful of how we live our lives. There, Paul wrote this ironically enough to the church in Ephesus. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of your time. Because the days are evil in Ephesians 5 verse 15. His warning to be ready, watch out. There are going to be those who are false. There are going to be those who are going to try to pull you from the faith. There are going to be those who will twist the truth, teach distorted things. He says, I don't want you to fall into that. And says, I want you to think about for three years, day and night, I told you all about that. Be careful and be ready to watch yourself spiritually, to protect your heart. And to think about in your life what you need to do in protecting that and being ready to watch out for your soul, watch out for your faith and being careful about the false things that can come along. Now, fifth thing, watch how this all comes around in, at the, in chapter 21. In, in chapter 21, after leaving the Ephesian elders... You have another scene where here is this opportunity to not follow through with going to Jerusalem. I want you to notice that in the in the scene that is put before us, it says in verse 11, here he is staying in, in, in man comes from Judea after he comes to Caesarea. And in verse 11, it says, here is this prophet in verse 11, he came to us. He took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. So Paul wasn't kidding when he said, In every city I go, there are, the Holy Spirit's telling me how badly this is going to go. Now he finally gets to Caesarea. He's almost to Jerusalem now. And now another prophet comes to Paul and says, Here's what's going to happen. You're going to be bound up just like this. But notice what happens next. Verse 12 says, And when we heard this, interesting, we have a we back. So here's our accompanying and Luke. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Do you think they made plausible, rational arguments? Do you think these Christians had Paul's interests in mind? Absolutely. Paul, this is a bad idea that everybody's telling you how bad this is going to go. Let's not go to Jerusalem. Let's not go to Jerusalem. Look at verse 13. And then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased. And said, let the will of the Lord be done. And can you imagine this? All of these Christians are just pressuring him and say, you can't go through with this. Don't do this. Don't go up to Jerusalem. And I want you to see that he's just saying, no, I'm not going to do that. 
And I want you to see a couple of things with this. First, it's one thing to say, I do not hold my life of account and I'm going to give my life to the work. Just as Paul had said back in chapter 20. And it's a whole other thing to do it. And Paul, as he's on the doorsteps of Jerusalem, says, I'm ready to follow through. I'm ready to go all the way. I am ready to give my life. I know that it is going to happen. And yet, even with these well-meaning Christians who are giving him all kinds of logical arguments on why this is a bad idea, he is going to follow through anyway. And I hope we'll think about that. You can have well-meaning, good-hearted, good-intending Christians telling you to do the wrong thing because they're going to tell you you need to watch out for your life rather than do the work. And that's what Paul has. He has a whole slew of people all telling him, you can't go, you can't go. What are you doing breaking my heart? I'm ready to die. I'm ready to give my life. I'm ready to do the work. I am not only ready to be imprisoned, but I'm ready to die for the, for the name of the Lord Jesus. We need to mentally be ready to follow through. Here's why I think that's important. Because I don't think anybody is going to be willing to sacrifice their life for the cause of Christ unless you have carefully and intentionally readied yourself for that moment beforehand. Because in the moment of crisis, in the moment of being put to the test, if you haven't mentally readied yourself, you're not going to make that right decision. Imagine being like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where the king says, all right, I'm going to give you one more chance. Let's stoke the fire up one more time. We'll play the music. And all you need to do is just bow down for a minute and you're going to be okay. And how easy it's going to be in that moment to go, fire sounds really bad and I don't want to go through that. And I want you to see how amazing it is that Paul was just ready. He's ready to follow through. He is surrounded by Christians who are begging him not to do this. And he says, I've got to do the Lord's work. I'm ready to die. I am ready to follow through. And friends, we must be ready to give our lives in service to Jesus. I'll say that message probably until my dying day, but the more and more our culture moves further and further away from God and becomes more antagonistic to the people of God, all the more we better get mentally ready to be able to make a stand, to speak the truth and deal with the consequences. Because it won't be easy to do when you're put on the spot and you haven't been mentally prepared for the moment. Paul is ready. He's just getting ready for it. Even though prophet after prophet tells him he's ready. What are you doing breaking my heart? I am ready to give my life. And here he is. What are you doing weeping? I am ready to not only be imprisoned, but ready to die. We must put ourselves in a place of readiness that we are willing to be imprisoned. We are ready to be rebuked. We are ready to be ostracized. We are ready to be canceled. We are ready to die. Whatever it takes. 
to be able to proclaim the gospel as God would want us to. So let's end with this, those, those five pictures. Number one, will we be encouragers like you see the Apostle Paul being? That we would look at how we come together and be with the people of God to encourage one another. And I hope one of the ways that we will think about encouraging one another is in a readiness to stand for the gospel. In a readiness to proclaim the gospel. Number two, that we would be ready then for worship, that it would be our great joy to want to be together and to take advantage of these opportunities, not only in worship, uh, uh, worshiping God, but also in our encouraging of one another. Number three, watch out for the spiritual wolves. There are going to be people, even among us, who will try to pull us from the faith And cause us to try to question our faith so that we do not obey him or follow him as we ought to. Number four, ready to die. Ready to die. That's not an easy one to get our minds around. And for such a long time that has not been an issue in our culture and in our country. But are we really ready to die For the cause of Christ to be able to stand up and proclaim his name no matter the outcome and truly then be ready to follow through no matter what it takes. These two chapters to me are absolutely astounding pictures of how Paul readied himself in every aspect of the gospel, ready to be an encourager, ready to be a worshiper, ready to stand for the faith and ready to die for the cause of Christ. And I'll end the lesson just by having you think to yourself, are you ready for those things? Are you ready to be what God has called you to be as a disciple of his in following through in those things? Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would make us a ready people. Lord, that you would make us always ready to take advantage of opportunities to speak your name, proclaim your truth, and share the gospel. Lord, help us to be ready encouragers, to not simply think about what we are receiving, but how we can lift other people up to give them the help and the hope that they need. Help us to speak with wisdom and speak with truth so that we can help one another and encourage one another in the work. Lord, I pray that we would always be zealous for you and for zealous for your worship, that we'd be zealous for your word and that nothing would take us away from it. Lord, help us to be able to discern what is truth and what is error, to understand and know and to practice what you've taught us in our lives so that we will live it faithfully in the days ahead. And and Lord, I pray that you would help us to have a mind about our physical bodies that we see the Apostle Paul having. Lord, help us to think of our lives as simply in service to you. Remind us all the time, Lord, that we are instruments in your service that are ready to lay down our lives to do your work. So, Lord, help us to not cling to this world and to cling to this life or to cling to these bodies. Help us, Lord, to cling to eternity. Help us cling to what lies ahead for us. Remind us of it daily, Lord, and forgive us for how often we forget what you have called us to be and what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll sing an invitation song. We invite you, if you are ready to be a follower of him, to come to him this very night, turning away from sins.
and following him faithfully with all of your heart. Can we help you do that this very evening? We certainly want to be able to do that for you. If you will, let us know or come forward while we stand and while we sing.